Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Nothing great in the world has ever been accomplished without passion. Hegel. My guest on this episode of Sound Practice transformed her fear into her passion. While on the path to transformation, she was helped and hindered by a variety of teachers and mentors. Her story inspires while pointing out inequities faced by some in the STEM fields. Cancer immunology, glycobiology, and mentorship. All next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Rachel Willem Chernley. She is an organic chemist, a chemical biologist specializing in organic chemistry, glycobiology, and cancer immunology. Dr. Willem Chernley teaches at South Dakota State University and is a contributing author to Lessons Learned Stories from Women Leaders in STEM. Rachel Willem Chernley, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you for having me. It is our absolute. Uh, it's absolute pleasure. So how did you become interested in, in chemistry? Sure. So that all really began for me. Um, if I'm doing the genesis of my interest in science justice, it really began on a subconscious level when I would spend summers in my grandfather's veterinarian clinic. So my grandfather, um, he was a large animal vet, and then later in his career, he opened a small animal practice. And I have very fond memories of being in the lab portion of the clinic and being in scrubs and him saying, come look at this. And he would invite me to look through the microscope at rather disgusting things that had been inflicting animals. But I remember the scientific inquiry, the scientific method. And so that's where science really got its start for me. And then chemistry specifically, I was a junior at Creighton University and I was terrified of taking organic chemistry <laughs> for reasons that people who have had to take organic chemistry will understand. And the truth of the matter is that I fell in love with it. Um, organic chemistry is a very different way of thinking, and it is understanding how bonds are being formed and broken, which many of us just take for granted because we look around and uh, we see molecules basically that are already assembled. But uh, organic chemistry is nothing more or less than being able to predict how to form bonds, how to break bonds, so that basically we can make molecules. This is how therapeutics are made. And I found that discipline so fascinating that I gave up my acceptance to medical school. And at the time, I i mean, I, I was regardless of a major in biology. And i that was it for me. That was, you know, I was completely head over heels in love with organic chemistry. And so I pursued a PhD in organic chemistry instead of going to medical school. I hate to bring this up, but not everyone was in, as encouraging as your uh, your grandfather. 
And mm -hmm. you write, quote, women aren't smart enough to be chemists. One of your professors mm -hmm. uh, in your undergraduate work in chemistry stated, mm -hmm. do you believe that female students today are subject to such overt misogynism? Yeah, yes. I. My understanding is that behavior is still being experienced, that behavior is, yeah, women are underrepresented minorities in general. I would extend it to underrepresented minorities as well, but uh, specifically with women, yeah, you hear, I still hear um, experiences that women are having where they do experience that level of, you said, like overt sexism. I believe that it's getting better, though. Um, I absolutely believe that it is becoming less and less of an issue. When I was contributing to this book, I said it, but I'll say it again. You know, the bottom line is the realization that um, I know the book is focused on women. You don't have to be a woman, though, uh, to have to experience just blatant discrimination and bias that contributes or can contribute to altering your life's roadmap. And that's really the unfortunate set of circumstances that I see playing out today. But um, yeah, years later, after that experience, I still kept in touch with friends and colleagues and people, um, you know, kind of at that institution. And my understanding is that behavior uh, continued, but it was becoming less and less. And then just in general, I believe that society has definitely made it known that discrimination in any form is intolerable. And I believe people are listening and learning and changing patterns. Sorry, that was a really belabored <laughs> answer. No, but um, this is, is an important uh, topic. And it seems to me that there's a failure in the administrative level to allow such behavior to to take place. And mm -hmm. I'm concerned that you believe that it continued on and, and continues mm -hmm. to some degree. Uh, mm -hmm. Why do you believe that academic administrations are inept at rooting this out? Sure. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, at one point in time, my perspective is that if you were a tenured professor, that made it very difficult for you to lose your job. For better or worse, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. We see many examples recently in the media, and not one specifically is coming to mind, but I know at major R1 institutions, tenure faculty are actually losing their jobs for discriminatory behavior. Um, uh, I think I wrote in the book at some point, you know, proving that you are the recipient of blatant sexism uh, is hard to prove, or it seems like it can be hard to prove. And to some extent, I think that's an issue as well. I mean, I don't know if issue is the right word, but you have you have to prove that it was the intention, that it was, as you said, overt. And then as well, there are layers of protection at the academic level, which is tenure. But again, I'm encouraged that more and more we're seeing that upper administration is taking the stance that discriminate against students based off of their gender, ethnicity, uh, what else do I want to say, their 
just preferences is intolerable and it always should have been intolerable. Um, my perspective is that as a professor, my job is to uh, act as a mentor. Uh, I view my relationship with my undergraduate and graduate students as that of a collaborator. And my job simply is to impart my expertise onto my students, whether that's in the classroom by teaching them the foundational knowledge of organic chemistry, whether it's in the lab of how to be an organic chemist or a chemical biologist. Because of my experiences, and I believe just who I am in general, my perspective was never that it's my job to tell you what you should do with your life, what you are capable of. I myself, looking back at my own academic roadmap, I think that I probably many times over proved people wrong. And it was never my intention to go out of my way to prove people wrong. I just believed in myself. And at some point stopped buying into the perspectives that other people had of me. And then being the recipient of discrimination in one form or the other continued, thankfully, to solidify that perspective that what I believe I'm capable of is more important than what anybody else believes that I'm capable of. Um, there you go. <laughs> All right. What, what's uh, what, what's shift? Because I, this is something that I've been interested in, and you, you spend your, mm -hmm. your life teaching. Can mm -hmm. intellectual curiosity be taught? Yes, I think, yes. I, I've i never actually wondered that before, but funny enough. Uh, yes, I do believe that it can be taught. My perspective is that people are intimidated by the STEM sciences, and they we all are scientists in our own right. Um, and it's a matter of, again, being having that confidence that the questions and curiosities that you hold are valid and they're worth these questions are worth asking and they're worth pursuing. Good. Um, you mentioned earlier you were admitted to medical school, but you you turned that down in uh, in favor of pursuing a, a PhD. Can you tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about that decision? Yeah, that decision was driven by my desire to spend my life pursuing what I was passionate about. Um, I have, I'm an example of this. I have seen the following play out, and that is that people seem to be the most successful and the most content when they are pursuing areas that are of interest to them and that they are passionate about. And I am definitely a person of that persuasion. I am not making an absolute statement. People are successful all the time at in careers or pursuing things that they're not passionate, necessarily very passionate about. However, I am one of those people <laughs> that I found that um, you know, I am driven. My success, I believe, is definitely a, a product of constantly being interested in what I'm doing and being passionate about what I'm doing. And I find that I, I, I almost said picked a career. I picked a career, if, but in some respects, I feel like the career picked me mm -hmm. that is very difficult. You spend your life as a 
as a PI, as a scientist, pursuing questions that you think are interesting, which is fantastic. But the responsibility that comes along with being a scientist is a great one. You simultaneously have to basically run a business, your lab, you have to fund your lab, you teach students about your areas of expertise. And then in the lab, you meant you teach and you mentor students about how to become a scientist as well. There is so much failure, and I hate that term. There is there are many opportunities for learning and growth in this discipline. And my perspective is that if I didn't love it, if I wasn't driven by the interests I find, the passion I find with being a scientist, I would have walked away a long time ago because it's a very rigorous and demanding career. And like I said, some people are very good at sticking with something if they're not really interested in it, but I'm not. I can spend hours on end doing something difficult if I really like it. And I keep going back to organic chemistry as this, as this, as this example. When I was an undergraduate student, I was so enthralled with organic chemistry. I would do all the homework problems in the back of the book. I would stay up till 2 a.m. just practicing because I found it so interesting. And that is what I mean. Something that by many people's... Um, perspective, a very difficult discipline. I loved it so much. I just couldn't get enough of it. And even when it would kick my butt and challenge me, I was still motivated to stick with it. Anyway, so the take-home message is that my decision not to pursue an MD was because my heart really wasn't in it. My passion, what I was interested in, became organic chemistry and pursuing scientific endeavors that utilized organic chemistry was something that I believed in very confidently that I would not tire of. And actually, when I talked to people about this, I said I felt like I would be bored as an MD because it's a practice that, uh, depending on the field of medicine you enter, it is, it's a practice. Science is a practice as well. But, you know, let's just say um, being an orthopedic surgeon, you start to see the same uh, same operations that you need to do. And you do it over and over and over again. And I think for me, the perspective of constantly challenging myself on an intellectual level, that was very enticing for me. Something that's always different. You know, I uh, just to like belabor the point, I'm putting together this infographic about the accomplishments of my lab. And we've gone from synthetic methods development to enzyme antibody drug conjugate development to other traditional chemotherapeutic development, all while we are elucidating biochemical mechanisms of action. And that is seriously interesting for me, just the variety of ways that I can apply my skill set keeps my job really interesting. Well, that's that's very interesting and, and lucky, I think, because uh, so yeah. many people don't get to uh, spend their days doing what they're passionate about. So um that yeah. that's great tell me a little bit you 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 started into it but tell me a little bit more about your work and i'm specifically interested in the uh, cancer immunology can you tell me what sure. your lab's doing and your study in that area yes so the 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 bottom line or as i always say the take-home message is that i am an interdisciplinary applied organic chemist and for people who aren't as 
familiar with organic chemistry. Um, I think of us metaphorically as molecular bakers, or in the book, I call myself a rom-com director and documentarian. And to contextualize that, just like a baker will put, um, we call them reagents, they'll take sugar and flour and put them together to make a product, which is a cake. Organic chemists do the same thing. We take uh, simple reagents and we put them into a round bottom flask and we make a product. And the product that a lot of people are familiar with organic chemists being responsible for, like I said, are therapeutics, Tylenol, aspirin. It took a synthetic organic chemist to design the recipe, the synthetic roadmap to make these drugs so that you can go into your medicine cabinet and grab them. Um, so that's what an organic chemist does. Uh, so we do synthetic method development. So uh, I'm looking at a poster right now of our work. We take two molecules that we have high confidence will react with one another to form a new functional group that can be used downstream to do a number of things. But in your body, these re you have numerous reactions that are taking place all the time between different biological functional groups. And so uh that's where we apply organic chemistry so i'm also a glyco cancer immunologist uh glyco glycobiology the study of sugars cancer immunology basically how does cancer um engage how is it able to engage in tumorigenic processes evade your immune system things of that nature so as an interdisciplinary scientist, I run an interdisciplinary lab. I have a chemistry lab where we do the synthetic organic chemistry, and I have a biochemistry lab where we do the glycocancer immunology. The chemical biology aspect of my work is really bringing the two together. So a chemical biologist traditionally is, is a scientist that uses a variety of disciplines to solve biological problems facing society. And so my lab uses the lens and the expertise of organic chemistry to solve biological problems that involve cancer and glycans. And so people will understand the following, which is that I am very interested in how cancers use sugar residues to evade the immune system, engage in multidrug resistance, metastasis, uh, things of that nature. And the organic chemistry comes in because we're really interested in one sugar residue called sialic acid and how and sialic acid is an important sugar in your body and it is able to be highly functionalized. So what I mean by that is it can have a lot of different uh, have a lot of structural differences. And the reason why we care about sugar is because all of the cells in your body, including cancer, wear a layer of sugar residues. And we call this the sugar coat as a glycobiologist or the glycocalyx, which is the official term. And this layer of sugar residues that your cells, including cancer wear, are there to protect yourself from injury and help your cells communicate with one another. And so by if I come back to the sugar residue sialic acid we are really interested in, once you start making or once there are structural differences on this sugar, that affects how, how cancer is able to communicate with your, your other cells in the body, including immune cells. And so what we have found is that these structural alterations on sialic acid allow it to hide in plain sight from NK cells or natural killer cells, allowing it to survive. We have found that if uh, certain proteins are 
what we say glycosylated, so decorated with these glycans or sugars, if they also have a very specific functional group on them, that allows proteins um, uh, like ABC efflux transport proteins to be overexpressed on a cell surface. And why you care about this is because these efflux proteins are what help a cell regulate what comes and goes inside of the cell. And these proteins are very important in multidrug resistance and cancers overexpress these certain proteins and efflux out chemotherapeutics. And so that was a recent paper that is in Frontiers in Oncology. Uh, Great. As you know, this is the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. And Mm -hmm. I'm interested in your thoughts on leadership. What makes a good leader? A leader, a good leader for me is somebody that absolutely leads by example. Um, And if you, you had some good leaders in uh, your training, have Mm -hmm. you not? Yes, definitely. Uh, Dr. Patrick DeSalt, my graduate PI was a fantastic leader as well as my postdoctoral mentor and PI uh, Nobel laureate Carolyn Bertozzi. Two very, so many people, two, two very influential people in my life, but I can't mention their names without mentioning um, Dr. Miller. He was undergraduate organic chemistry professor, and he had such a positive influence on my trajectory. I had a very dichotomous undergraduate experience, and uh, Dr. Mike Miller, uh, my undergraduate chemistry professor, he always exuded confidence in his students, whether or not, again, whether or not whatever he was believing underneath the surface was irrelevant. If you went into his office and you said, hey, listen, I'm really struggling, but I really want to get an A in this class. If you were sitting at an F, he would say, we're going to get you that A. He had, oh my gosh, he really set the stage for me when it came to, um, when it came to what uh, the qualities that a professor really should have. He was, like I said, always confident. His job was simply to encourage you, but and impart his expertise onto you. And he was so accepting of all the students in his class. And um, he, <laughs> he means so much to me, as you can tell. I mean, I choke up even talking about the positive experience that he had on my life. Yeah. Well, that. That is um, a real testament to the power of, mm-hmm. of good teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's shift gears. How, if at all, do you feel that the COVID pandemic has impacted those in STEM? Oh wow, that is a, a very large question to unpack because uh, the bottom line is it impacted so many people on a number of different levels. So I believe, you know, what was talked about quite a bit, the first thing that comes, I mean, aside from my own experience, the first thing that came to mind is that it it brought up how women were disenfranchised by the pandemic. Uh, Women uh, certainly seemed to take on a lot of the responsibility for uh, if you had children at home, that wasn't necessarily... I have a very support. I, I'll I'll pause and say I have a very supportive partner, 
uh, Ian Charnley. Uh, I've been with Ian <laughs> since I was 17. And we have developed, our relationship has definitely developed with this expectation of equality. And we don't buy into gender roles, even though I find that sometimes we are, we do take on those gender roles. <laughs> it's not because we're forcing each other into them. Uh, but, you know, as a woman, I, I had a child, my youngest son during the pandemic, and it was definitely one of the most difficult periods of time in my life. And I remember writing in the book that I don't want any more kids as a result of what I experienced during the pandemic, which was continuing to be up against grant deadlines, publication deadlines, teaching while managing a family and protecting a family at home and everything that that entails. Uh, I, you know, on the academic front, I don't, I think that students probably struggled doing everything online because there is something that is sincerely lost in translation when you aren't in class, when you're not in person engaging in active learning, think pair sharing, um, engaging in a very metacognizant process that I would argue takes place on a more substantive level when you are in person. And it's too easy to be behind a screen and be distracted by any number of things on your technology. But when you're in front of an expert and they're asking you questions and they're asking you to explain yourself and with your partners, and, and again, I keep saying metacognizant, thinking about how you are thinking about something, that all of that I felt really is reduced by um, e-learning, but I don't want to take away from the fact that some people do seem to learn well on their own and um, online. That just isn't my experience, and that's not what I see in the classroom either. Interesting. Well, as our time together comes to to a close, I'd like mm -hmm. for you to make some predictions about the environment women in STEM will experience in years to come. Oh, sure. My hypothesis is that we will continue to see more equality, less discrimination, and I would extend that hypothesis out to everyone. I sincerely see, and I, I mean, of course, I put this into practice and I expect others around me to put it into practice, which is that discrimination is absolutely intolerable. And I see everybody getting on board with that sentiment. I. So I definitely believe in the future, we will see the type of equality that we continue to strive for. And I can't remember if I explicitly say this in the book, I, but I'll say it for myself now, which is that I believe it is my job to not repeat the mistakes of my predecessors, if you will. And what I mean by that is that, and you can hear it, I continue, I'm continuing to push the narrative out to everyone, uh, underrepresented minorities, but anybody who feels as if they're being discriminated against, anybody who feels like they have been at the level of discrimination that could derail them pursuing their passions. Um, you know, keep standing up for yourself, keep uh, setting boundaries, uh, exclaiming that that type of behavior is not appropriate because it's not. That's my take home message. Well said. Uh, the book you. is Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Leaders in STEM. My guest has been uh, Professor Rachel Will and Charlie. Professor, thank, thank you, you so much for your time. 
This was a delight. Thanks for having me. My thanks to Dr. Rachel Willen-Charnley for her time and story, her contributions to Lessons Learned, Stories from Women Leaders in STEM is worth reading. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, but man and Robin went from Kapow.